Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 19. And as you flip there, let me just ask this question. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? I didn't make that question up. That was Alan Jackson. He's a country music star. I was reminded of this song yesterday, listening to another brother preach at Presbytery. But but to me, you know, yesterday marking the 20th anniversary of of the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and uh, United Flight 93, it's always a year of reflection for me because for those of us who are old enough to remember it, it is one of those moments where you remember exactly where you were and exactly what was going on and, and, and felt viscerally for many of us what was going on in our hearts. I personally was at the White House, not the one on Pennsylvania Avenue. Everybody's like, what? No. Uh, the one in Harrisonburg, Virginia, next to James Madison University. It's what we called this big white house that we lived in with nine other college students. And JMU really pulled from uh, New Jersey and northern Virginia, which is two of the areas most deeply impacted by uh, these attacks. And so that day just changed dramatically. I woke up to watching those sites on television. We went downstairs, and within an hour, our living room was full of students from New Jersey, Northern Virginia, praying that their parents or their siblings or friends had made it through the attacks. Many of them worked in the Pentagon. Many of them worked in the Twin Towers. And and that was just a long and anxiety-filled day. Now, thankfully, um, that did not directly impact these people, at least in their immediate families, but I know there at JMU there were 11 um, mothers, fathers, siblings uh, who were lost in these attacks. But as I reflected on it, I remember the beauty of the moments that followed as you began to see people, regardless of uh, status or color or creed or belief or socioeconomic uh, standing, they, they went to ground zero to help. Or um, there was this commercial that I remember that it just showed people uh, that were so different from one another, different religions and, and what have you, and saying, hey, we are all in this together. Do you remember those moments? They were powerful. They were powerful. What was interesting was that as the sentiments began to fade, some hostility began to kind of wiggle its way back into we're all in this together. People, particularly from Middle Eastern descent, were really harmed in many ways. This was ironically the time that was the rise of different uh, news outlets on both sides that began to really polarize our nation politically, at least. But you know what? We had a second chance. In 2020, there was this thing called a pandemic. And I remember the same commercials. We're in this together. We're all in the same boat. How's that going? How's that going? In a short 18 months, we've moved from in the same boat to you better bail on your side of the boat because your side's sinking. (laughs) It's the same boat, by the way, right? It was interesting. And this is not a comment to anything political, but I was listening yesterday to George W. Bush as he was reflecting on the last 20 years, and he says this. He says, The country had been unified, but increasingly, he said, America is menaced not only with foreign dangers, but by violence that gathers from within. Here's where I'm going with this. I'm very grateful for those moments where we're kind of galvanized as one. But now I'm old enough to look back 
and reflect and realize that that united we stand, it's oftentimes short-lived. In part, or maybe mostly, because our hearts are darkened by sin. We're masters at building dividing walls between one another. Even last week, I used a sermon illustration uh, where I essentially said, hey, in this tornado massacre and everything that has happened, nobody's holding to the same polarities that, that separated us the week before. It's always dangerous when you use a, a almost real-time sermon uh, or event in a sermon because somebody said, actually, <laughs> this is what happened where I was. Here's what I would argue, is that by nature, because of our flesh, that united we stand is pretty short-lived because we really are out to build our own little towers of Babel, our own little dividing walls of hostility to protect, in part, what we talked about last week, identity. Last week we began a sermon series, a brief one, looking at this picture of, of divided we stand. As the church in America will often stand and sing praise to God and we'll sit down and, and we will just hate in our hearts the person sitting across the aisle from us because of some sort of ideology, right? A, a man-made or human-made line of thinking. I quoted Matt Chandler who said, you know, people are choosing churches and friends based on ideology now more than theology. What we know and understand about God. We said the building blocks are where we have to start is really getting to the root of what is our primary identity. For many of us, it's just for for all of us, I would argue, uh, we desire to take our secondary identities and work hard to achieve them and make them our primary identities. And because of how hard we work to do that, when somebody gets in our way, we eviscerate them on social media, verbally, or in our hearts. We argued last week that that the true identity, especially for those who claim to follow Christ, is one not that we achieve, but that we receive. His grace. His identity. Our starting points in 11 to 13 were these pictures that, that we all begin on level ground. That we are all guilty and rejected rebels, treasonous against our one true King and God. And because of that, we are enemies with God and with each other. But there was great hope in verse 13 where we read, it says we have those, uh, that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so friends, here's what I would argue today. That even though in our hearts we love to build dividing walls of hostility, we have a solution to those walls of hostility, and it's the blood of Jesus. And that blood is our peace. So listen to that word as I read from Ephesians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow along with me, beginning in 14. And again, listen for the word peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might in himself uh, reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
Let me pray for us as we get going. Lord, as we talk about identity and as we talk about the things that divide us, Lord, we are tampering with the fine china of our lives. Lord, with the things that we hold dear. Lord, to some of our deepest wounds even. And Holy Spirit, I recognize that unless you are on the move among us, that we would very easily remain divided. But Jesus, we see that the blood of Christ is our peace. And so would you help us this morning put down our weapons and lean into that concept. Lord, something that we cannot attain on our own. Holy Spirit, would you soften all of our hearts to your word. Lord, would you be with my words. Help them to not be careless. And Father, we pray that the gospel is the only true offense that is uttered or believed today and that we see the gospel not as an offense, but as an invitation to peace and grace through your work. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. All right. So, did you hear the word peace? It said four times. So the end of 13, it says, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what we're walking into in these verses is saying this is the outworking of the blood of Christ among the church. And the reason I'm saying it's among the church is the pronouns change. It goes from you to we and our. And so Paul is saying the blood of Christ now does this with us. Four times it says he is our peace. Two times we hear the opposite of that and saying not hostility. And so last week, we, we saw this picture of Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, saying, I long to gather you under my wing like a bunch of chicks. And so the picture of the gospel is that's what he's doing. We are coming and taking refuge in the grace of the gospel, but we're not one chick under his wing. It's the whole lot of us. And so this is how peace, the peace that comes from the blood of Christ, engages with us, the church, who, quite honestly, are very different. Now, inevitably, someone will come up to me after a sermon like this where I talk or preach about unity, and they'll say, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I've preached on this several times, and I've, 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 I've leaned into this several times, and the reason, typically, that people say, hey, unity's not the thing. They'll point to Luke 12, where Jesus says to his disciples, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather, division. All right. So here's where I would just encourage you. Read your Bibles well. Context is king. What is happening in Luke chapter 12 is the disciples are sitting around going, hey, how come in our families, you know, there's division. Some are following you, but then some aren't. And it's creating all sorts of chaos. And and I would say that's exactly true. And that's not contradictory to what we see today where Paul is saying this is what unity within the church looks like. By nature, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, we started this last week. We didn't go too deep into it, but at the beginning it says, by nature, guess where we all start? We all start being children of wrath. And it says in 2, we are following the prince of power of the air. Until we change our allegiance to the one true king, Jesus Christ, we are following the general that is starkly opposed to him and Satan. Everyone, by nature. And so, of course, there's going to be division when there is a choice for people not to follow him. They're they're enemies. There is a spiritual war that happens. The other reality to this is if we are constantly giving ourselves to sin, 
We are not letting the Holy Spirit work our pride out, work out our arrogance, work out our false gods. Yeah, we're going to butt heads with each other. Sin will harden our hearts, not just towards God, but towards other human beings. But here's the miracle in this section, is Jesus is saying the gospel offers something unique that takes mortal enemies and makes them brothers and sisters. And that's most clearly demonstrated in the God of the universe, Jesus himself, dying for those who are starkly opposed to him in every way, shape, and form. And so here's where we're going to head. Last week we talked about how sin makes us alienated with God and alienated with one another. And today is really the undoing of that, looking at this idea of peace. And we're going to look at this in three points. That the blood of Christ is peace between people, is peace with God, and is peace in the church. i got to warn you, I only got through one and a half of those in first service. So we'll see how this goes. All right? But here's the first point, is the blood of Christ makes peace between people. And there's two things we see. There's an old animosity and there's a new humanity that we see in 14 and 15. First, there's an old animosity that the blood of Christ looks to address. It says, He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now, full stop. Last week, the both that they're talking about here, we, we unpacked a little bit. It's the Jewish people... And then it's the ethnot, it's the others, it's the non-Jewish folks, which is called Gentiles in this passage. For Paul to have the audacity to say these two have now been made one, it's just mind-blowing if we truly understood how divided these two people groups are. When it talks about this dividing wall of hostility, right? Did you see that in 14 where he has broken that down? A good picture of this is something that existed in the temple where uh, there was a literal wall that separated the rooms where the Gentiles were to worship God and where the Jews were to worship God. And there was a sign in Latin that said, Gentiles, if you cross this wall, you're going to die. Now just stop and think about that for a second. If you, well, most of us are Gentiles, right? We would fall in that place where we feel kind of this ostracism, I can't even say that, where we're being alienated from a people group. Sorry, I can't use words. Um, how would that feel? Would you be angry? So for Paul to say, through the gospel, we're making one? It's just mind-blowing. I don't, I'm not going to give you any two people groups. We, we live in a day where everybody is a mortal enemy of everyone else, essentially, right? So use your imagination, but think of the two most polarized groups of people you could imagine. And Paul's saying, you know what the gospel of peace does? It brings them together. Now, I actually don't think the dividing wall of hostility that he's talking about here is that literal wall. And I say that uh, because really I think at the beginning of 15, he unpacks where this dividing wall actually is. It says, it's broken down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. All right, Old Testament law. Let's go back, okay? Uh, the law was basically, you can separate it into three parts. There's the moral law, so think Ten Commandments. Those are things that still stand today, are applicable to our lives today. Then there's ceremonial law. That's the, the law of sacrifices and cleansing of rules of the priests and who can approach God and who can't. And then there's the law that was the civil law because the nation of Israel at that time was a theocratic state, which means God is their president and king. So the ceremonial law has been satisfied in Jesus. He is our sacrifice. He is our great high priest. The civil law goes away because that nation state does not exist in the same way, in a theocratic way, as it once did. 
But what Paul is saying here with these laws and commandments and ordinances is he's saying that the dividing wall was that that was spiritual. It's the thing that made people clean and unclean and holy and unholy. And it was really uh, this righteousness piece. And I think it it, it swerved into this idea of self-righteousness. And so it was this huge wall where the Jews, I think, I think actually probably sinfully was like unclean, unholy, clean, holy. Look at us. We're on the right side here. Colossians, which is kind of a companion book to the book of Ephesians, Paul writes this. He says, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's talking to everyone who now claims to follow Christ. Our starting point is dead in our sins. And in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Circumcision was the sign of who God's holy people were and who weren't. Uncircumcision wasn't good. It meant you were outside of the household of faith. So it's saying those, all of us who lived there, God made us alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven all of our trespasses by what? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what he's saying here is all of the guilt that we bear, that we, you know, we all have those guilty moments. I know we don't like to talk about guilt a whole lot in our culture anymore. I think we might even feel it less, but, but we know it's in there. It's usually fed or reveals itself in some form of shame. But what he's saying is, is in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, the guilt of whatever sins that have been a part of our hearts, it is taken and nailed to the cross, and it has nothing to do with any right works of our own. Zero percent. It is a forgiveness that is received. And so let me just say this. We don't necessarily have a Jew and Gentile divide any longer in the church, at least uh, ethnically. But I would argue this. We still have something in us that leads us to think, because I land here, wherever here may be, I've got to be closer to God than you. It is that same self-righteousness that holds nothing in the eyes of God, for paying for the penalty of our sin. Any mercy or grace that we have received, it is simply received and not achieved. There's a new humanity that comes next, and that's in 15b. It says this. It says, Now He has created in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. One new man in the place of two. So we live in a day and age where we're like, oh, Anthony, that's not good. You know, this, this feels like um, homogenizing something, right? Where you're making two unique things one. And I actually don't believe that's what's going on here. He's not saying, I'm stripping away all of your identity uh, with regards to those secondary identities, who you are, where you were raised, your languages, and, and your traditions. No, in fact, The picture that we have in the book of Revelation is none of those things are gone. It's every tribe and tongue and nation still speaking and singing different languages around the throne. And there are still different glorious colors worshiping the God of the universe. One commentator would say it's not homogenizing, but rather recreating. It's taking what is and it's making it better. The church father, Chrysostom, says it's like taking a statue of silver and another of bronze, and then it comes out gold, right? It is this recreating. It's taking the good things and making it better. 
And so, friends, as we talk about this idea of unity and making peace between people being uh, really a, a hallmark of the body of Christ, why is it important? Why is it important? Well, if you've never read this book, and it's written in 1970, it's by Francis Schaeffer. It's called The Mark of the Christian. Look, it's not long, y'all. Get it. This is worth reading in our day and age. And here's a couple of his arguments. One is from John chapter 13, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now listen to the why. Listen to the why. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's talking about people who have called on Jesus in faith. And so in summary, he's saying, the non-Christian will know whether or not you're a Christian by our ability to love one another in the church. Okay, here's the next one. John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying to his Father. And he says, I don't ask for these only. He's saying, I'm asking not just to give me the ones who are here, but also for those who, who will believe in me through their word in the future, that they may all be one. Why? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what this is saying is that the final apologetic for the existence of the triune God is that we are one just as Jesus and the Father are one. Francis Schaeffer sums it up like this. He says in John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love towards other true Christians, the world has the right to judge that he is not a Christian or she is not a Christian. Oh, that's rough, right? It gets worse, right? It gets worse. Here in John 17, Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting and much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. It should make all of us wince. It makes me wince. Because, oh, how short we fall. Let's talk about the next point of this passage. And it's this idea of peace with God. Because he doesn't just leave us there. He continues to do his work in and through us, right? One day he is going to present the body of Christ, the church, pure and spotless before his Father. We're not going to do anything to upend that. Praise God. Here's the second point. Peace with God. And we're only going to get through half of this one too. Sorry. But I want you to see this picture here of double reconciliation. In verse 16, uh, as we talk about what the blood of Christ does between us and the God of the universe is an aspect of reconciliation. You'll see it in 16, that he might reconcile us both to God. All right, so you know what it means to reconcile, right? It means there's been uh, a severing of a relationship, and it needs to be reconciled. It's saying we are, it's implied that we are enemies with the God of the universe, and we needed someone to come and make peace between us. And that's what Jesus did. But here's the double reconciliation part. Is that no matter how much in our individualistic culture we think it's just me and Jesus, the Bible never presents grace and his redemption in that way. Again, the pronouns here are we's and us's. But did you see the other part of it? 
It says, he may reconcile us both to God, both people in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's double reconciliation. Here's uh, just another picture from a different author of the New Testament where we see that mercy is never just for us. It, it means we are becoming a part of the island of misfit toys in many ways where he calls us to be one together. First Peter 2.10 Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We cannot separate our faith from the church and from the body of Christ. Have y'all ever had your family, guardians, whoever it may be, kind of drag you to a sibling or a cousin's sporting event? Did you ever experience that as a kid? I did. I always had to go to my cousin's t-ball games. I mean, t-ball is exciting if you're playing it. It's not so exciting if you have to stand there for a tournament that lasts like four hours, right? And so I remember just being really bored and trying to find something to do. And I was reminded of this this week. I'm reading uh, this illustration by a guy named Brian Chappell who... Uh, he experienced the same uh, sort of boredom, and he was talking about how he and his brother went over to the side, and, and they had a bag, and there was dirt, and they're like, well, we're going to create something. So they filled the bag with dirt, uh, they tied it off, and they cut off the, the corner, and they found that it's pretty cool to throw it up and see kind of the trail of dust go through the air. Well, as these sorts of things go with siblings and, and what have you, it kind of began to devolve a little bit. You ever experienced that? Maybe. And so one sibling started throwing it, and they're like, oh, cool, the dust is getting on you when I throw it right over your head. And so the angle of the bag began to change and get a little more direct and have a little bit more velocity and to the point it was basically a bean bag where they were just throwing it at each other as hard as they could because they were furious at that point. What about that time the father sitting on the bleachers with all the parents are like, boys? Right, we know how that feels too, right? You know, you kind of get that, oh, okay. And then he looks away and you're just like, boom. And then one time, Brian said, he leaned back and he just chucked this thing. And in kind of this matrix moment, his brother was like, you know, and the bag goes sailing past him, right over the crowd sitting in the bleachers, and nails his father. How about that, huh? Now, you know that moment, too, right? The boys didn't care about their fight anymore. They're like, you know, and everybody's kind of like dusting themselves off in the stands and the dad looks and he comes down and, you know, the instinct in that moment is, I'm so sorry, dad. I'm so sorry. And what struck Brian is his dad was like, I accept your apology. Uh, and he was very gracious, but stern. But the dad recognized something in that moment. He's like, you hit me with the bag, but, but what's going on here needs to be addressed as well. What do you say to your brother? Right? Friends, oftentimes we view our fights with each other in that division as just simply being me against them. But friends, when that sin and that division enter in, it's not just with that other person. It's with the Father. (laughs) It's rebellion against Him. The blood of Christ reconciles us to Him, but we need Him to also be at work among us, reconciling us to one another. As John Stott says, God turned away his own wrath, and we, seeing his great love, turn away ours. The only way this is going to happen is if we actually stare at the cross and his forgiveness towards us. 
I gotta be fast. I got like one minute. So I gotta cruise through this. It's gonna be an abrupt stop. I just gotta warn you. But, but I wanna give us some practical takeaways because it would be easy to say, okay, Anthony wants us to like sit around a bonfire and play kumbaya and not care when somebody sins against us and not care when somebody else is in error or opposed to God's word. And that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I think the gospel actually gives us more than anything else uh, the tools to be able to engage with one another. When we harm one another, when we need to go to another person who's in sin, here's a quick picture. What happens when we've been hurt by another brother and sister in Christ? It's not get on social media. It's not post a veiled prayer request for a friend who did X, Y, or Z. Matthew 18 tells us to go privately to the person. With the aim of not winning, but restoration. I wish I could sit and just walk through Matthew 18. But then right after that, we have this picture of forgiveness. Because the reality is, is when we must forgive, there's always loss. Forgiveness is hard. A debt must be forgiven. And Matthew 18 points us to this reality at the second part of that. Is that when that time comes for us to forgive, we need to look at the forgiveness that's first been demonstrated towards us. And so that's a picture of what happens when we've been hurt. But, but what happens when we just disagree? Because a lot of what's gone on during the pandemic has been disagreements on things. And so this is like lightning round. But, but I would say first, humility has to be our heart posture. Matthew 7, 5 is saying, when, uh, don't judge when you do go to confront someone. Remove the log from your own eye. We are never sinless in conflict. And oftentimes we're like, you got a speck in your eye, we got a sequoia tree sticking out of ours. And so humility is saying, I'm a sinner first, but I still need to move towards this person for restoration. But humility also runs the other direction. I love what Jack Miller used to say uh, as a pastor. He's like, when I was confronted, somebody would say, hey, you did something wrong. And he would always respond, you don't know the half of it. Like, I don't even know the half of what's wrong with my own heart. And that's why we need the brothers and sisters in the body to help us. Humility. Moral principles and political strategies. I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but friends, in the church, we really need to learn how to differentiate between these two things. Sometimes we are calling something a sin or a moral imperative that's actually not. It's a strategy of how to get at a moral principle. An example of a moral principle, even from this passage, is God's deep care for the alien, the stranger, and the immigrant. God's word, a moral principle, is we need to care for folks who fall into that category. Political strategy means, you know, progressive, conservative. We may differ on how to get to the same point. Let's labor there well. And then finally, levels of believing. I sent this article out a while ago, if you remember it, but uh, there really are, in Scripture, I would say three levels of belief that I see, and we can play with that, right? But, but there's things to die for, there's things to divide for, and there's things to just simply debate, debate and decide for. Friends, we live in a culture where everything's to die for. We need to change that. Wrestle well with God's Word. Put things where they need to be. And by God's grace, may he give us the opportunity to not build another wall, to not put another brick in the wall, but to rather lean on the peace of the blood of Christ to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. Let me close this in prayer as we move towards communion. Lord, help us. Lord, we're coming to a table 
that is a visceral picture of you breaking down the walls of hostility that we love to build up. Lord, would you use it to encourage us this morning and to continue to help build the body of Christ? Pray these things in your name. Amen.